We're looking this morning at the joy of living by the Spirit. Having begun in the Spirit, how do we live the Christian life? You'll notice in your bulletin outline, the first point I'm making is that new birth forbids a return to the old life. Jesus taught Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. John 3, verse 6 and 7. The absolute necessity of the new birth is explained by Paul in Romans 7, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. See, that's where we're at. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. My, how our world, how America would be changed if they just believe that last phrase. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But they're out there trying, right? But here is a definitive statement that says it ain't going to happen. It can't happen. External reformations like the Pharisees attempted just don't cut it. Jesus said to them, You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees! First, clean the inside of the cup and the dish. He's talking about them. And then the outside will be clean. Matthew 23, verse 25 and 26. There, See, they're working on the externals. Then they're not doing anything about the inside. And what invariably happens with external reforms is digression and recession. They go down, they go back. Peter explained, A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. 2 Peter 2, verse 22. Now why is that so? Well, it's because the dog is still a scavenger by nature. He'll eat anything. And the sow is still a pig by nature. That's why. The same holds true of men. The Pharisees were still full of greed and self-indulgence by nature when they came across as washed or clean china on the outside. Well, look at my dishes. Look at my appearance. I'm sparkling here. Yeah, but no one could look into their heart except God. And God laid their condition bare before his eyes. So the issue then is not how we make ourselves look on the outside, but if we have indeed been reborn with a new nature effected by the Holy Spirit. We are, in the end, not able to live long in the watching world as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
Dr. Jekyll, respectable as a noted physician and scientist on the outside, will soon be marred when Mr. Hyde's murderous exploits begin to surface in his life. But we try that facade. Paul in our text says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is Galatians 3. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Galatians 3, 1 to 3. Now what is he doing here? Paul is putting his finger on the sticky point in many professing believers' lives. Having begun, allegedly so, their life in Christ by being born of the Holy Spirit, they now try to live the Christian life by reverting to the same good works mentality indicative of their old way of thinking and living. What's that? That's the pig back to the mud. Salvation, brethren, is not simply a matter of beginnings. It is also a matter of finishing well. This week, one of my dear friends, Dr. James Greer, friend and pers uh, personal friend in the competent biblical scholar, died after a long battle with cancer. We're all going to die. That's inevitable. But it's how we die that separates true believers from mere professors. And if our faith is something we wear like a garment and is easily tossed aside during trials, then our faith is suspect. Paul wrote to young Timothy, his protege in the ministry, and here's what he wrote. Keep your head, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5 through 8. This could be said of Dr. Greer. And I hope can be said of me, and I hope can be said of you when our time comes. It's important that we not only note our beginnings in the faith, but that we assess how we are presently living the Christian faith, which is a way of life more than it is a religion. And we were talking about that this morning in the adult class. And you can sense Paul's upset with the churches of Galatia. He calls them foolish Galatians. 
chapter 3, verse 1. He accuses them of being bewitched, which the Greek word means to be charmed by evil. How could you be charmed by evil? Well, they were. And in Galatians 5, our text, verse 7 and 8, he says, you were running a good race. You were. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. You were doing good, but something's happened here. And this harks back to chapter 1 in which Paul says, I'm astonished <laughs> that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7. And if you look at the context there, he's talking about the fact that some hucksters had infiltrated the church with a message of salvation by believing in Jesus. Oh yes, of course you must believe in Jesus. But to Jesus you must add, you must add obedience to the law of Moses. And in particular you must be circumcised as to externals, you see, a work of man. And so salvation then became a partnership with faith in God and the product of human endeavor. And it is an, an admixture of the old nature still trying to justify itself and the gospel of new birth, rebirth, which is the sole work of God's Spirit. Can we mix that? Well, these false teachers said, yeah, that's the way it is. That's what salvation is. Yeah, you, you have your faith, but then you have your, your doing that you need to, uh, to do to be a true child of God. Now, the churches of Galatia had started out well. They were running the race in the power, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul had taught them the gospel of grace. He had made it plain that no one is saved by good works. They learned that salvation is all of grace. We cannot claim rights of ownership through the payment of good works. And then the lies of Satan began to infiltrate the churches through false teachers. Men who just could not let go completely of man's abilities and professed goodness. They came up with a hybrid. Jesus plus obedience to the Ten Commandments. That was the hybrid. And you know what? Grace was destroyed. Then and there, grace was destroyed. Paul explains, writing to the Romans, At the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now here's how he explains. And if by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Romans 11, verse 5 and 6. 
There's your definition of grace, folks. Do you want to ask Justin to come up? I got a gift for you. Justin is my go-to man. You like money? How'd you like to have five bucks? Good. Go for it. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I got a, I got another idea. What if instead of give me that bag? Thanks. What if I give you a task? Here's a bottle of car polish. Don't look on that on the TV. And a cloth. And my car is parked right out here. If you just go out and just do the bumpers, they're really cruddy. Okay. All right. No, no, no. Come on, come on back. <laughs> He's too willing. <laughs> oh, by the way, there. You're welcome. If I were to pay Justin five dollars to polish the car, if Justin actually polished the car for five bucks, that would be a tremendous bargain for me in today's market. But I could not claim to have been gracious to him. No, he could rightly say, well, you know, <laughs> Pastor, I earned the five bucks. You gave me the polish, I got the cloth, I went out there and got it dirty. I, your car's looking good. Now, the dollar amount is not the point. $5 or $500, any contribution of labor on Justin's part would make the money a payment owed, not a gift given. And when people try to obtain God's forgiveness by paying for it, penance, grace is destroyed. God's salvation becomes null and void, and people are left in their sin, not forgiven, still lost, still bound for hell. It's part of this payment mentality that must be repented of when we come to the gospel. No wonder Paul is upset with the churches of Galatia for buying into such an error. His letter was written to get them back on track. You foolish Galatians, you're, you're going after another gospel which is not the gospel. He, said this, he says it this way, After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain the goal by human effort? Yeah, you started out well, but whoa. Chapter 3, verse 3. And in verse 5 of our text, a very sobering truth. Listen to this. You have been trying to be justified, saved, by law. You who have been trying to do that, by law, have been, get it now, alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Oh, no, 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 we didn't want to do that. Well, you have. This is what exactly is going on. My grandma was a workaholic. Really true. Up five every five o'clock every morning, up till eleven o'clock every night. 
work, work, work all day long. If she wasn't working for herself around her house, she was working for others and doing all kinds of civic service for the church and so forth. But, but, when it came to people helping her, like if she were ill or if she needed help financially or something like that, she would always turn it down. And here's what she would say. I don't like to be beholding to people. You know what that was? That was a pride thing. And what she was basically saying is, I can take care of myself. I don't need grace. I'll work it out. She had a hard time with people just saying, there it is, this, this is a gift. Show up at the door with a bag of groceries or help her clean her house if she were ill or whatever. She had a rough time with that. She's not alone, folks. There are many people, when they hear the gospel of grace and they hear the free offer of the gospel, they say, I don't know about that. That, that sounds too simple. That sounds too easy. It's a pride thing. I think it's one of the hardest things they got to do is swallow their pride. So, when we become born-again Christians, God does not expect us to revert and go back to the old way of doing things. Secondly, the new birth of grace sets us free Here's its work. It sets us free from the rigor of work. Wiseman Solomon wrote it this way. I hated life. <laughs> this. He's so honest. I love it. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless and chasing after the wind. And so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all that he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil an anxious striving with which he labors under the sun. All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17 and following. Now here Solomon outlines for us some of the more salient points about work, some of the darker side of work. He says, work, it's grievous to me. It's grievous to me. It's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It's toilsome labor. It's anxious striving. You ever think it worked that way? And in the end, the proceeds of his labor are left to someone who has not worked for it. So 
That's anticlimactic because he doesn't reap the benefit. Someone else does instead. Oh, and while he is working, all his days, his work is pain and grief, he says. And at night, when he should be relaxing, his mind does not rest. These are some of the darker sides of work, which we would do well to consider when we are trying to mix works with grace. Work is tiring. Grace is invigorating. The one thing we all acknowledge about work, whether a student studying for an exam or a machinist and working on a part in a shop, a lawyer advocating for a client in court, a pastor preparing a sermon, a hairdresser working with a client, at some part in the day you're going to become weary and tired. Now, we all know why we work. We work because we have to. We work to maintain life, to have the resources to buy food and pay the utilities and purchase housing and buy automobiles and clothes and gadgets and, and on and on. Solomon, too, acknowledged the need of work. His point, however, is that work in the end is meaningless because along with what money can buy, there's a lot of negatives. Like bills to pay and pain and grief. And chief of all, tiredness and a lack of fulfillment. Why then, why then would people hold out for work in the form of obedience to God's moral law as the means of pleasing God and winning heaven? especially when God himself says so plainly. We know that a man is not justified, he's not saved, by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, we too have put our faith in Christ. What goes for uh, you goes for the apostles too. We have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified or saved by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because, by observing the law, no one will be justified. No one will be saved. Galatians 2, verse 16. We apostles have figured this out, and that's the gospel. And that's come to us the same way as we're preaching it to you. Seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? You have two alternatives. You can work your tail off and drop dead of exhaustion, still falling short of God's glory and heaven's bliss. Or, by faith you can believe that Jesus Christ has done all the work for you, has earned an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, says Peter. 1 Peter 1, verse 4, which was bought and paid for in full, not by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1, verse 19. And then, and then, is handed to you as a gift on a silver platter. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Let me ask a very serious question. Aren't you tired of work, folks? That's not a joke. Aren't you tired of work? I am. I am truly tired of the toil, the pain, and the grief of work. I like my work, but I don't like this dark side of work. I'm tired of the routine, getting up every morning to face another day, busy at work. I'm tired of the transitory nature of work. The food bought for my pantry today will be gone or inedible tomorrow. I'm tired of the monotony of work. Same old, same old. But if I do not plug on, there will be no support for my family. I'm tired of the losses of work. Inflation that robs my dollars of purchasing power. Increased taxes that take more from me to give to a government that will not support the First Amendment rights of freedom of religion. I'm tired of an aging and sometimes ill body that makes me huff and puff on projects that I just used to breeze through. I'm tired of that. And I'm tired of never reaching personal and family goals. I'm tired. If you are likewise tired, why do you keep running the treadmill when it comes to the gospel of God? Paul spoke of his fellow Jewish brethren. Here's what he said. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, the free gift in Christ, you see, and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They're just out there working. Oh, are we working? Doing all the ordinances, all the laws of Moses, trying to get saved. Since they sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now listen to this next statement. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who works, no, 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 no. For everyone who believes. Romans 10, verses 2 through 4. Oh, and there's an end to something else. We have it in our text, verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by law, that is, your obedience to it, you're trying to work your way to heaven, you who are trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Oh, I wasn't bargaining for that. Well, that's what's happening. 
How does that happen? Galatians 5 verse 2. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised or any other legal stipulation and you're thinking of that as what's going to save me, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Wow, that sounds pretty ultimatum. (laughs) Oh yeah, and what is really depressing is this. Partial obedience to the law of God is counted by God as disobedience. What? Verse 3. I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, as an obedience to the Mosaic law, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Whoa, whoa, did I read that right? The whole law? Well, that's more work than I had envisioned. This is more work than I had bargained for. Oh, yes, and what is more, it's an impossibility. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James 2, verse 10 and 11. And you can go, you can say that for every one of the Ten Commandments. You only have to break one to become a lawbreaker. And I think what James is saying is, you don't get to pick and choose your pathway of obedience Because the standard of God is rooted in His own character. Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. Perfect? Who can do that? Perfect? I can't do that. Ask my wife. You can't do that. I'll ask your wife. Nobody can do that. Perfect? Nobody but one. Jesus, God's Son, of whom the Bible says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9. Okay, so how does Jesus' perfection help me, a sinner, who cannot make it through a day without breaking God's law? Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code, the law, with its regulations, that was against us, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. 
And in Colossians 1, verse 28, Paul writes, We proclaim Him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, get the next phrase, everyone perfect in Christ. Perfect in Christ. That's how we become perfect. Colossians 1, verse 28. Perfect in Christ. Is that real? I mean, He did that for me? Yeah. Again, Paul writes, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who Believes. Romans 10, verse 4. Faith in Christ is the end of the law and all the work you're trying to do to please God and earn heaven. And if that were not glad news enough, the faith to believe, like the salvation it affords, is the gift of God. Meaning you don't even have to come up with the faith. God will give it to you when you ask. So where do you read that? It's in the book. It's part and parcel of His grace. I mean, think about it. How cruel to dangle life-saving bread in front of a starving man who's chained to a post. Can't get at it. So God says it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, yes, and this not from yourselves, It, the faith, is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 48 and following. The new birth of grace sets us free from the rigor of work. The faith is a gift. The new life is a gift. Jesus is a gift. Salvation is His gift. But our pride says, I don't know. Sounds too easy, too simple. Let me just throw out this thought to you. If it were so easy and so simple, why aren't there more people saved today? Why are there more unbelievers than believers? I think the pride of man is such a hurdle. It is such a mountain. It's the Himalaya of sin to get over. That people just keep on the treadmill. Chugging away. Now that brings us to the last part of our outline, which is what it means to live by the Spirit. If we're indwelled by the Spirit of God, how do we live by the Spirit? Look at verse 25. 
Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. When my kids were little, when my girls were little, Dad would dance with them in the living room floor, and this is how he did it. They would stand on the front of my shoes and hold onto my belt or around my waist, and wherever Dad moved his feet, they went with me. They were truly walking in step with Dad. Paul says, well, you know, if we live by the Spirit, well, we need to walk in step with the Spirit. This is the basic principle. That new nature that you have in Christ was birthed by the Holy Spirit. That body which houses your soul was now indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It is what makes you a Christian. No Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. You say, I, I, where do you get that? It's in Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, writes Paul, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Clear as crystal. So here we learn that the Spirit who indwells us is none other than the Spirit of Christ Himself. That Spirit which animated our Lord's physical body when He was here on earth. That's why he told his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, verse 7. And then John explained, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. John 7. Verse 39. Every physical body needs an animating spirit to function. Death in its most basic definition means that the spirit has departed. Used to be an old phrase that people used of the dead. They would say, so-and-so gave up the ghost. They meant, their spirit. They breathe their last. And they're referring to that their animating spirit. So taking all of that into consideration, it's a rather humbling thing to learn that our new nature, born of the spirit, is embodied within us and animated by the very spirit of the living Christ. Since we live by the spirit, we've come to life by the spirit, let's keep in step with the spirit. Let's use our bodies, animated by the Spirit, as Christ used His body, animated by the Spirit. Number two, to live by the Spirit means we are people of the truth. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. John 14, verse 16 and 17. 
It's inconceivable if we are indwelled by the Spirit of God who cannot lie that we should believe it an appropriate use of our tongues to engage in deception or lies or slander or innuendo or gossip or misrepresentations and the like. Do we do these things? Yes, as a result of remaining sin, but our goal, our intent, is to become truth speakers like our Lord. You say, is that possible for sinners? <coughs> to become like the Lord Jesus in this whole area of speech? Truthful in our actions? Well, Paul was a sinner. He was the first to tell you so. He says he was the chief of sinners. Listen to what he says. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's, he's asking God, he's calling God as witness to what he's saying here. As God is my witness, you know we don't use deception or any of that. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. Or again he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Romans 9 verse 1. Paul, a sinner, learned how to be a truth speaker. You cannot walk in the Spirit and be a pathological liar. Revelation 21, verse 8, lists all those banned from heaven. It says this, All idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now Christ has died for all of our lies, yes. He's died for all of our deception, all our trickiness. All of our gossip. He's died for all of that. He's paid those penalties. As we trust in Him, then we're to become like Him. Number three, to live by the Spirit means that we are ever teachable disciples of Christ. Ever teachable. Again, Jesus says, that, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 14, verse 26. That's the job of the Spirit. When He comes, He's going to teach you the things about Christ. When the original twelve disciples, even with them, minus Judas, when they had difficulty comprehending the teachings of Jesus, it was because they were not yet filled with the Spirit. After all, we're talking about a newborn in a growing process. Jesus said to them, his inner circle, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John 16, verse 12 through 14. One of the things that evidence the fact that we're walking in step with Spirit is that we're teachable by the Spirit of God. We were talking about that in the adult class this morning. Do, do we ever 
get to the point where we know enough that we can stop. We can just stop. Stop studying, stop learning. No. And incidentally, Jesus is not talking about knowing in the sense of the Bible as a book that is handed to you and says, here, read, know what's in the book. He's talking about the Bible as a book that can be understood when you read it. And you need the Spirit of God for that. It presupposes that the Spirit of God is your resident teacher. Paul writes, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For he who has known the mind of the Lord, who has, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we have, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Yeah, we do. Oh, and one additional presupposition. The Spirit will teach, but we have to be teachable disciples. The writer of Hebrews chided his readers saying, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need blah, 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 milk, not solid food. Hebrews 5, verse 12. Instead of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, as Peter has commanded, 2 Peter 3, 18, these people had regress because of their own indolence. Knowledge of the Holy One is like any other subject. It involves study. By the way, that's one of the reasons why we gather here on Sunday morning to hear a message from God's Word to feed your soul like you feed your body in about another half hour. Same thing. Number four, to live by the Spirit means we will evidence the Spirit's fruit. Look in your text here at verse <clears throat> 22, <clears throat> 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, that is to say, no prohibition. There's no thou shalt not be good. There is no thou shalt not be faithful. There is no, thou shall not be gentle. There's no law against these things. These are the things that are to be promoted in our lives. Contrast that to the acts of the sinful nature, which are listed there in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, and it's a long list there. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, and so on. And then he issues this, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, that's what the old flesh produces. 
all those things contrary to God. Now, the contrast here between what we just read in verses 22 and 23 and verses 19 and following, the contrast here is this. It's a conflict. Look at verse 17 and 18. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. You're not helpless. You're not under the, all I can do is sin. All I can do is break the law. No, 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 no. If you're in Christ, you can produce, He will produce in you the fruit of His Spirit. Um... You know, that's the difference between our old life and the new life. In the old life, we could say it this way. <laughs> All I can do is sin. My thoughts are sinful. My speech is sinful. My goals are sinful. All I can do is break God's law. That's what I am by nature. But you know, when you're in Christ and you're dwelled by the Spirit of God, now you don't have to sin. You can choose not to sin. That's different. That's radically different. I can choose to sin or not to sin. I can obey the Spirit's leading and walk in step with Him or I can go like the pig back to the wallowing in the mire which will be regression. But if you're in the old nature and you're not indwelled by the Spirit, all you can do is sin. Isaiah says, even our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Even when you do something good, which you think is good, it falls short of the glory of God. Let me ask this morning, are you at peace with your sin? Does it bother you to lie? Does it bother you to engage in immoral thoughts or actions? Does it bother you to steal? Does it bother you to gossip, to get drunk? To dabble in the occult? To have fits of rage? To be jealous, envious, greedy, unthankful? Does any of that bother you? These are all signs of the sinful nature, not the spiritual nature. They prove that you're still dead towards God if you're not bothered. If you die in that state, you enter what the Bible calls the second death, from which there is no salvation and no escape. That's why the scripture says, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Today. That's because tomorrow you may be in eternity, and today will have passed you by. So today, if you sense God's Spirit convicting you, chiding you, drawing you towards God, repent of these sins that you're happy with, that you're at ease with. 
and ask Christ to give you his nature and his spirit. Say, I don't know that he will. Oh, yeah, he will. The problem is not with Christ. The problem is with you. Let me read it for you. Jesus' own words. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Never. Say, well, Pastor, you just don't know my life. You don't know the sinful way I've lived my life. I don't have to know. God knows. And this God, God the Son, is saying, whoever comes to Him, He'll never drive away. Oh, let me read one more verse. It's even more helpful. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Praise God. And I will raise Him up in the last day. John 6, verse 37 and following. It's definite. And in the Greek, it is really definite. It's shall have, shall have eternal life. You know, in English, shall is um, much more forceful than will. We use will most of the time now. Old King James used shall all the time. But here NIV says, shall have eternal life. Why? Because your salvation isn't based on you working, working, working. It's based on Christ to whom you're coming in faith, of all that comes before him, I will never drive away. They shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up in the last day. Resurrection unto life is a whole lot better than resurrection unto eternal punishment. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the gospel of grace. Ooh, we fight against this so much. I know, I know, it's, it's debasing to pride. We want to think that, they're, that we're not that bad off. No. There's some redeeming qualities in us. There's some good in us. And when we compare ourselves with other men, we can always find other uh, people who are more sinful than us, more wicked than us, even by our own standards. But then how we, do, we use that, we use that to say, I'm okay. I'm okay with God. We don't use God as the standard. We use other people. But if we would just take a look at God and His perfection, if we would listen to Him say, be perfect, be holy, if we would hear Him say, without holiness no one will see the Lord, if we would hear the Word of God and not try to make, make us look better, more rosy than we are, we would see our great need of grace. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you are a God of grace, that um, there is a plan of mercy, there's a plan of grace by which you operate. If you were just a wrathful God, there was no grace or mercy in you, we'd all be condemned to hell, and rightly so. And that'd be the end of the story. There's grace on your part. 
there's goodness in your heart, there's mercy for us. And though we are sinners deserving of hell, if you will grant us your spirit, if you will make us alive, if you will draw us, if you will grant us faith, then, Lord, we shall become your children. Please make us your children today. That one that's been rug wrestling and they've been trying to work their way to heaven. They've been trying to please you. And maybe they haven't even been trying all that much, but they've, they think their life is not all that bad. Show them the impeccable holiness of God and show them the grace that's through Jesus Christ. Forgive us for being so arrogant. Forgive us for being so prideful. In Jesus' name.